This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo, and their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! Hello, one and all. I am the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's work. This is Noah Ballard, Be Real Podcast and the Playlist Podcast Network, along with my buddy, Chance Solon Pfeiffer. Chance, what's up? I'm doing great. I normally do the lead-in, and I normally say something uh, dumber than that. I thought that was pretty good, right? Yeah, it was good. Uh, happy to be here, buddy. We're gathered here today to talk about Quentin Tarantino's ninth film entitled Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Nice. Thank you for watching the ellipses. Respect the ellipses. Some people aren't using the ellipses in their long form think pieces about this movie. And I think that's a a tragic error. And it Uh takes away my enjoyment of whatever hot their take, however hot their take may be. I'm with you. What's this movie about? This movie stars um, Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie in a pastiche, if you will, of 1969 Southern California Hollywood movie and television making at a time of change on the edge of going from this sort of very booming while also formulaic studio system to what will become the independent and anti-studio movement of the early 1970s. We're also at a crossroads in the culture. You know, we're at an age where, you know, the 50s are over. The 60s have been about free love and hanging out and, you know, letting people come and go. And, you know, if you're a blind old guy with a bunch of real estate and a bunch of hippies come and say, hey, can we live here and work the land while you're blind? Is that chill? And like maybe in 1969, you were inclined to say that that was chill. Um, but this movie posits that we're on the the verge of a nastier, evil kind of moment. Uh, and if it isn't for men with codes, we're fucking doomed. Is that fair? That's great. Do you want to do a... Uh, one of the things you're, you're referring, of course, to the, the change sparked by the Manson murders. And, Absolutely. Uh, which are uh, portrayed but twisted upon in this movie. Do we want to do a, a spoiler and a non-spoiler half? Does that sound good? I feel like if you're listening to this now, what, a week and a half, two weeks after this movie came out, it's because you saw this movie and you're like, huh, I wonder what Chance and Noah have to say about this movie that I already saw. If right. that's not you, that's fine. 
you know, but I don't think our breakdown of it will ruin your, uh, you know, impression of the film, even if you find the ending to be somewhat surprising. All right. Spoiler safety's off then. You've been warned. Uh, Changing my lasers from stun to kill. That's right. Yeah. Uh, You know, Vincent Vega dies in Pulp Fiction. Nobody survives Reservoir Dogs. You're going to have to live with us. Hitler dies at the end of uh, Inglorious Bastards. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. (laughs) All the shooting. (laughs) I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? We did Hateful Eight, and I think it's one of the stranger sort of reviews we ever did because I think that on some level, you and I were both very impressed with that movie. It's viciously acted. The tension is great. It's Tarantino doing one of many genre plays that he just adores and wants to live inside of. Um, But I think we landed on the fact that, like, after talking about it, like, it was too gross to, like, there were too many things gross about it, like, literal, like, viscerally gross and politically gross to really kind of, like, come to it open arms. Um, and I feel like with this movie, I was, there. there's a burst of violence at the end. But I was just, It's a Quentin Tarantino movie. I was very happy that it was not Django Unchained. I was happy that also it wasn't Django Unchained. I was happy too that like, even though like what the problems I had with Jennifer Jason Lee getting the shit beaten out of her in Hateful Eight, I did not have the same problems with at the end of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> You're so committed. Let's um, start here, and this is it. Sort of gets into things we talked about last week, and like the actors sort of playing versions of themselves in romantic couplehood stuff. This one, I feel like the draw of this movie is seeing Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie playing people who were like negotiating their way through Hollywood in that sort of David Mamet state and Maine entourage of the 1960s kind of behind the scenes thing. And so I feel like you're coming in with that question of like, okay, so here we have Leonardo DiCaprio, one of the biggest movie stars there is hasn't been in a movie since he won the Oscar for the Revenant. Uh, where does this, where do we find him? Where do we find his Rick Dalton here uh, at the opening of this movie? Right. I think we find Leo, and argue with me if you think I'm wrong, being the biggest star currently still working in movies. We hear all the time that like the star system is dead. Um, but this movie is a giant hit. And I think it's because Leo works once every two years, and people are just like, I have to see what that guy does next. Um and it's so funny to think about it through the lens of The Revenant, too, and thinking about Leo as one of the most like serious and committed actors of our time while also being a golden boy. And Quentin Tarantino 
getting him to apply the same level of dedication that made him like learn to stitch his leg up and sleep inside a dead bear. Now apply that to being an actor who's like drunk and not very good. <laughs> and my, I mean, he's good in some things and we'll get into Rick a little bit more, but yeah, take all the things that have made you successful and make them interesting in showing someone who's not succeeding. Which is funny because like he's almost cast against type in this way. Like Leo's never really been, you know, he's never really had the kind of public meltdown or career misstep that has made us question his star power. So seeing him do like goofy music videos in the 1960s is like pretty funny. And to hear other people around him sort of be like with Al Pacino, so the movie opens with him and Al Pacino in this bar and he's basically like your career in America is over. They're casting you as villains. And if you not only want to work, but want to work well as a protagonist going forward, we got to send you to Italy so you can start being in like the Sergio Leone uh, inspired spaghetti Westerns that are currently being filmed because the Western in America is dead. Right. Yeah. We should say if we haven't, that Rick Dalton uh, is totally fictional. (laughs) Oh yeah, um, but it, and is came to prominence in another fictional show called Bounty Law, which is I think akin to Quentin has said Wanted Dead or Alive, which was the TV show that sprung Steve McQueen. Um, so of course one of the really interesting things about this world is that if you hear Quentin talk about it, he's like, well, you know, Bounty Law was on from 1958 to the fall of 1963, and Rick Dalton signed a contract with Universal that bound him. It's like, Rick, no, he didn't. None of this is real. But, like, that's Quentin's thought process. Like, this, the character sketchings for these, you can only imagine Leo being like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so just tell me who the guy is. Right. And it's interesting, too, how he fits this fake story into this framework of real stuff. You know, he does it with the being very specific. So the movie starts with two days in February and then ends, of course, August 8th and into the 9th of 1969 when Sharon Tate was famously murdered uh, with three other people by the Manson family. But he's so bought into this, like, this is real. These are the real dates. These were things that were going on simultaneously. But he, in doing so, he's creating this, like, alternate reality Hollywood mythology, you know, that if only these two guys were hanging out. Like, he, they could have yeah. checked up on stuff, which is kind of goofy, but kind of perfect. Right. This is the first movie where I've ever thought about, and I was actually I was pretty proud of thinking about this, because the soundtrack of this movie is great. The soundtrack oh, yeah. for all Quentin Tarantino movies are great. But the number of like cross-genre, kind of bizarre covers that he includes in the score, whether it's Jose Feliciano doing California Dreamin', especially Vanilla Fudge doing uh, You Keep Me Hanging On, which is the song that... Uh, Brad Pitt puts on at the end for the violence, which is best known as a Supreme song. The fact that there are so many covers in the movie is kind of perfect because he's all he's chosen 
like people from the time interpolating famous works in like weird genre ways that makes it feel both very real and like an alternate universe, which is exactly what he's doing. Absolutely. I mean, people keep describing it as uh, a memory that of something that never happened. Yes. You know, so it's both homage and interrogation and subversion of the way you think of 1969 Los Angeles. Right, right. So let's talk about Cliff Booth real quick. So yeah, so Leo we have as the star of unchallenged proportion. And yeah, Cliff Booth played by maybe the most handsome Brad Pitt we've seen to date. When he gets on that roof to fix Leo's cable with the beer in the holster and cigarettes and just six pack rippling in the sun. It's like, this is a 55 year old man. Like, are you kidding me? It it, it is in its own way, like watching Tom Cruise, like jump off a mountain, but just being like, how's that guy still so fucking blonde and tan? Well, it's amazing because, yes, you have that physical performance on screen, but then that scene is so hilarious because, okay, you get this beautiful old man up on this roof to fix this broken uh, TV antenna, and then it cuts to him maybe killing his wife, A, and then B, him kicking the shit out of Bruce Lee, and then him cutting back to himself going, cool times, man, cool times. <laughs> um, settle a, actually, settle a question for me. Did yes. that, in the universe of this movie, I should say, not in real life because Cliff Booth's not real, is that a memory of him fighting Bruce Lee or is that a daydream? I have no idea. I, I've been asking myself that for, for days now. The idea of like, because the movie sort of posits, but also doesn't posit that like the reason people are kind of weird around this guy is that he's been accused of killing his wife, but then like got off for some, but like we don't actually see anyone outside of his own recollection, accuse him specifically of that crime. Right. So we don't know. Yeah. In that scene, is it like Batman fighting those weird, uh, bugs (laughs) in that one scene? Bring up, that scene in Batman versus Superman. A I think movie? that scene is a perfect microcosm for like the internal dreamlike mythology that we tell ourselves as people through I... larger than life characters. Interesting. I kind of think it's a daydream. I think actually Bruce Lee himself, much like Sharon Tate, frankly, on a larger scale in the movie, just like represents kind of just like a a figment of all these people's like imagination in this moment. Like when she's when Sharon Tate watches herself in that movie with Dean Martin. Shit, what's that movie called? Do you remember? The Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking Crew. And then she kind of like cuts in her mind to like training with Bruce Lee and him being like, that's good. It's like, did that really happen? Um, Well, it's so funny. It's almost like a Christopher Nolan-esque like daydream in a daydream in a daydream. Because it's like, here we are as the audience daydreaming about what Hollywood was in the 1960s. And then here are these two guys also daydreaming about like what their contemporaries and the people they aspire to hang out with are doing. And it's just like basking in the glow of their own success. Like I would say Margot Robbie's whole thing in this is she's basking. All she does is bask. Right. And then the Inception top stops and you might realize that we're all just like in Quentin's daydream. I think this is the most, um, you know, he's all, 
everything he does is just like, you know, I suppose reeks is kind of a mean word, but it's completely enveloped by authorship. There's never been a voicier, more popular director in our lifetimes. Um, right. And sometimes, well, I feel like early in his career, that authorness of him, that voice was like so much in the dialogue. And yeah. as he's matured as a filmmaker, what you see is just like weird takes on historical shit. Mm-hmm. But like with the kind of buy in that the dialogue doesn't feel like it's it's like too much. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel too like stagey, though I would argue some scenes in Hateful Eight are like a little are like a little much. In terms of the dialogue. Um, But I think with this one and with Django Unchained and with uh, Inglorious Bastards, you know, he's really taking on the way in which we collectively and through the movies that we consider good understand American history. Mm -hmm. And he's sort of poking at the, well, why do we think about it that way? Like if it's a movie, it can be anything. Let's talk. I think we might have to get into you know, just like truly what happens at the end to talk about what Sharon Tate like means to this movie. Cause there was the whole controversy when I think it screened at Venice and someone was, I was like, I don't know if controversy is the right word, a little kerfuffle when someone was like, uh, Sharon Tate doesn't have a lot of lines in the movie. And Quentin Tarantino's like, yeah. And so the whole time I was like, so what is this character going to be like? And yeah, it's not a very deep character at all. She is essentially like a symbol in the movie but a symbol of something worth rescuing. I feel like weirdly the end of the movie ends on a pretty optimistic note because I feel like the implication is now this person who you only know for being beautiful and dead could potentially like keep working, keep living the Hollywood dream, like actually become more of a person than she just like is in our limited imaginations. Yes. And I think this movie, too, plays with that idea of, okay, Sharon Tate is the innocence of that idea of, you know, being born in the Midwest and getting on a bus and, like, meeting the right people and becoming a movie star. Right. And that the system around you will protect you from true harm. And Quentin Tarantino creates then this triangle that's sort of around her you know, with real history, with Cliff Booth, and then with uh, Rick Dalton to say, like, she's going to be taken care of. She is this vision. She is what's tethering us to reality. And if Mm -hmm. only we sort of, you know, had these kinds of characters at the center of our American folklore or whatever, Mm. you know, then people would rise to that occasion or something And just think, like, what if this hadn't happened? Like, what would the studio system look like now? What would the way we consider, you know, groups of people who were, like, doing weird shit? Like, cults weren't really cults until the Manson family. And if you think about it, this is more of a thought experiment in the way you just outlined very well than either Inglorious Bastards or Django Unchained. Because in Inglorious Bastards, the Holocaust has still happened. In Django Unchained, right. slavery has like still happened. These are like revenge stories. And though the ending of this movie is full of psychological vengeance for people, it's not revenge. It's like it's a, a single incident that turns a tide of perception around hippies and innocents in the country that Quentin is suggesting, what if no? Which is actually much different than like Nazis are super bad. What if they got what they fucking deserved? 
Here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. Charlie's gonna dig you. And that gospel This movie is long. Like oh, a, yeah. like all Quentin Tarantino movies of late. Uh, a lot of it is the making of a fake Western. And I really found myself wondering what any, like if a 19 year old went to this movie and they were like, I've heard like Quentin Tarantino is like someone I should know about. Like, I think Leo's pretty happening. Um, what on earth would they make of the hour in the middle that's, you know, Rick Dalton on set, like navigating Sam Wanamaker, navigating this little girl who puts him in his place. Um, some, what, I don't know. How did you deal with all that? It could be a little slow, I could see. It's definitely a little slow. And I guess, so going back to like sort of how I entered this movie, I was expecting it to be more sort of behind the scenes in Hollywood with like fast talking agents and like, yeah. you know, whatever sort of attracts us to that post Doug Ellen uh, entourageification of Hollywood. But this really isn't that. If anything, Tarantino goes out of his way to not show you like the key grips hanging out and like the the wires and lights and things you need to make a movie and just sort of focuses on what the audience would have seen and how it came to be. So then when, because I think the best moment about that whole, you know, Western he's in uh, Leonardo DiCaprio with like Timothy Oliphant um, and, and ultimately Luke Perry and the little girl that he talks to before shooting it's just so interesting to them see him like call line because it's like, oh, like you really took the the steam out of this scene because I know it's a scene. I know you're an actor playing an actor, but like I was watching a Western for a second there and then right. you fucked up and it's like, ah, damn it. It's more. So you I really think you... feel that that thing of like what Hollywood magic is supposed to do. And if it's to make you buy into the movie within the movie, like that's talent. First of all, the way he makes whiskey sours the night before by just like pouring them into a Venetian tea kettle or whatever that is, and then taking them out into the pool. And then later on, after he can't remember the line, he's like, God, fucking damn it, Rick, eight whiskey sours, eight. <laughs> um, and then the payoff of the little girl being like, that's the best acting I've ever seen. And the director being like, evil Hamlet, I told you it would work. That you do get that community playhouse satisfaction from even like real lowbrow art at the time. Absolutely. But I wonder even if the end of that scene wasn't kind of a Rick Dalton daydream. Like I thought it was so ridiculous that like after verbally sparring with this like very headstrong nine-year-old girl or whatever... At the end, it pushes in on his face so you don't really even see her saying it, that that's right. the best acting that I've ever seen. Yeah. Like, I wonder if that's sort of his editorializing of, you know, what happened there. Because it's always these weird interactions. Like that moment played interestingly off the Sharon Tate 
conversation with the box office person at the movie when she sees the wrecking crew you know on one hand she's so starstruck but on the other hand she's like will you stand by the poster so people know who you are Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. is so interesting that that tug and the you know the pull and push of you know what is hollywood royalty what is stardom and what is like being pragmatic and like if you're going to take a photo of an actress who's only been in three movies you probably should you know put the the poster in there so you have that context can we come back to cliff booth i think brad pitt is so great in this movie in the same way that it appropriately works on leo trying really hard into something that is like a modest failure never has a movie taken the am I watching your divorce stereotype or inference of Brad Pitt not trying but being happy with that and putting it on screen in a pretty affectionate way. He's not an innocent man, as we learn, especially when we see what he's capable of. Nobody, none of the people we love in Tarantino movies are innocent, though. I mean, I kept thinking about after you see Cliff Booth, you know, bash the Manson girl's head against the fireplace mantle for the 12th time in a row, which is totally unnecessary um, in terms of incapacitating her. I'm just like, I really like this guy. Oh, no. But then, like, stop and step back for a second. Jules Winfield is a fucking murderer. Like, all the people you think are so cool in Tarantino movies, like, senselessly murder people. Yes. Everyone in a Tarantino movie has a code, and those who don't have a code are punished. And those who are naive enough to buy into a code they don't believe in. Like, that's what I think is so interesting about Tarantino taking on the Manson family is he's so into that, like, independent, like, even if this is wrong, even if you think it's slightly evil, this is my code. But seeing a group of young people be like sort of zombies, and we don't even see Manson. You just really see his disciples. There's only that really right. one shot from the trailer of Manson being like, oh, oh sorry, wrong house. And then Which is ultimately, very haunting in and of itself. It's super haunting. Um but really just seeing these disciples and then seeing their logic like bump into the what are you fucking kidding me attitude of <laughs> the the characters on screen mostly the these two male leads being like what are you doing with this loud car this is a private street like are you fucking kidding me and then like he like has that gun and they pull out the knives and booth who's high out of his mind is just like what are you joking like you don't know what you're getting into here. It's, you know, it's really a perfect uh, analogy for Cliff Booth himself is the dog, Brandy the Pitbull, who is just Absolutely. like so lovable, so content, so his companion in the same way that he trails behind Rick like a loving pet. Um, but at the end of the day, like, whoop, whoop, and it's a fucking violence machine. Absolutely. And I think, too, what you were saying about Brad Pitt, I mean, sort of juxtaposed against... Uh, the way you think of Leonardo DiCaprio coming in the theater being, and I argued sort of miscast Brad Pitt is perfectly cast in this, you know, Brad Pitt, the person is like, are you getting a little old Brad Pitt? Like, do you still got it? Brad Pitt? Like, what did you do in that private plane that your ex-wife is so upset about? You know, what, what's happening with you? And this movie perfectly like says, sure. Like, I'm not a perfect guy. Like, sure. I'm a little over the hill. And like, I'm not as glamorous as I once was, but like if you put me in a climax where I need to kick some ass, you know, or you need to put me on a roof where I need to take off my shirt and run my hands through my dirty blonde hair, I'm going to fucking do that. 
and he does, and he does it brilliantly. And yeah. he and, and to him having the moral fiber of saying like, "Here's this beautiful teenager in this car with me. Am I gonna hook up with her? Because that's like edgy or something? Like, fuck no. I'm a man right. with a code. You know, I don't I don't hook up with children. Like, right. It, that was incredible to me too. Being like. I may have smoked some weed and maybe had like an alcohol problem in my personal life, but I wasn't fucking kids. And it's not, but the other, the interesting thing though about the code is that it's not about her. It's not because like, I don't want to ruin your life. It's because like, I've been to jail and I ain't going back because of you, baby. (laughs) Right. It's because he's done bad things and he's like turned it into a way forward somehow. Um, Shit. What was I going to say? Sidebar, did you see the clip I posted of him on the red carpet talking about the music today? Oh, that he could taste it or whatever? (laughs) Somebody's like, how do you feel about, uh, how have you seen Hollywood change? And he's like, well, I think the renegade spirit of the early 90s is kind of back in the streaming services. Also, the music was killer then. The music's pretty damn tasty now. And I was like, what is this man who is almost as old as my father listening to? What is he? I have to know what music the 28-year-olds he's dating are showing him. The music was killer then. The music's pretty damn tasty now. So I feel like we're kind of in that cycle again. He's like really into Lizzo. Let's turn a corner because I, I really like this movie. I think that it's not... It could not pass Pulp Fiction or Inglorious Bastards or Jackie Brown or maybe even Reservoir Dogs for me. But I was pleasantly surprised by the things I was able to embrace about it. I like I like how obscure it is. The thing that really bothered me about Hateful Eight is I could feel Quentin Tarantino almost like calling... I kept getting the feeling he was calling me a snowflake or something like that. Or it's like, this is what you, you want to see, right? Is just this woman getting bludgeoning to death. They're the only black character being basically castrated. Like, this is to bother you back there in, you know, row six, seat nine. And this movie is just like, no, come inside my fucking megaplex of a brain and see just how nerdy it can get in there, which is so much more preferable to me and is provocative in its own ways, but does not seem targeted to upset my specific sensibilities. When in fact, I have no problem with violence in movies. I could deal with violence in movies. There's the great joke where the Manson family is in the car before and they basically have the debate that people have been having about Tarantino movies for 30 years, which is like, these, these are making us violent. These things taught us how to be violent, which, of course, like any Quentin Tarantino and everyone else, most people who are not like, uh, you know, Tipper Gore or something sure. are, like, are like, no, that's not how it works. Um, so yeah. I like this movie, but you had some issues. Is there anything you want to get out? I guess I just like went in thinking this movie was something that it wasn't. And then I uh-huh. spent two hours waiting for it to be that thing. Yeah. And then ended up enjoying like the last 43 minutes because I like gave up on that and it like never was going to be that. Um, so I need to see it again, I think. And I think I may see it again, which may get into my my rating here. Um, but I think it does have something really interesting to say. And it also presents the sort of anti four quadrant movie for adults that. I just like think we need good examples of, and this is certainly one of them. And I wasn't like annoyed having seen it. Like I feel like with so much adult cinema these days, or even like big tentpole cinema, 
it was like, why did I just see that? Like, what was the point of that? Like, what did I, you know, it's not doing anything new. And I was yeah. also concerned too, like, because when we saw Hateful Eight, it just felt like, of course, um, Channing Tatum's going to pop out of the floor because it's like Tarantino does something weird time. Like right. how unpredictable it was felt formulaic to me. So mm. I was concerned that this one was also going to do that. But really, it's it's a masterpiece, I think, of screenwriting in yeah. that this story was interrogated in a thoughtful way that you know, played with your expectations of a, what a Tarantino movie is B what adult cinema is in 2019 and see what Hollywood was like and what we're thinking about when we like, when the music swells during whatever montage at the Oscars, it's like, what nostalgia are you actually calling back to? Like, right. What does that look like? Cause if it's this, it's pretty weird. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> That's true. I think a, a point I would make on this level is that, and I don't know if this is maybe like what you thought you were getting, if we were getting something that was just like straight ahead, glitzier and slicker and more of like a how great is 1969? I don't know. Were you, just, were you feeling like we just get a tracking shot of, you know, like the Boogie Nights pool party or something? Yeah, I thought there were going to be more wide shots, frankly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and they definitely did build a ton of freaking sets to show 1969 Los Angeles. But at the same time, that's like not, it doesn't fetishize it, which I guess I expected it to. Right. Like I expected it to be that wide shot of like the Miracle Mile, but right. there really wasn't. And like some of those car shots, like driving around what is iconic Hollywood the cars are going so fast that like you can't even see the work that went into the production design here. Sure. Like sure. It, it almost takes that history for granted, which is sort of refreshing in these movies about a particular time. And for all the sort of like the, you know, the moment, the end of the epoch in American history, the, the moment of innocence lost. I think what's so interesting is that a lot of the movie is about people being unhappy and people slumming it. Even Steve McQueen, as played by Damian Lewis for two seconds in this movie, is unhappy because he feels his time has passed because Sharon Tate's not interested in him. She's interested in Roman Polanski. I um, never had a chance. <laughs> never had a chance, which is just a hilarious thing to hear Steve McQueen say. Um, but the only people who are happy are... People like Sharon Tate, who are just in the true bliss of youth, and people yes. like Cliff, who have come to accept that there is some value in pouring gelatinous dog food for the thing, the one thing he can take care of every night, and he can maybe take care of Rick, too. Um, so, yeah, that idea of, like, every, the party was great, and then, like, ooh, the party's not good. Like, it's very subversive in that way, I think. Right. Showing the people who are enjoying the party and showing also the people who are not enjoying the party uh, is, I think, one of the skills of this movie. And then showing the people who, like, desperately wish they could be invited to the party. You know, right, I think Rick. the funniest thing about this movie is that ultimately the plot of this movie is actor who wishes to meet uh, upstart <laughs> director and his wife ends up meeting her after stopping a home invasion. Right. Exactly. That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, that's, if you consider the dramatic structure of this movie, the inciting incident is him seeing Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate in that car go up their driveway. And Leo plays that. Leo plays so well in this movie 
the desperate joy that even a little validation can give. It goes back to oh, that's sure. the best acting I've ever seen. And at the end, when they're like, oh my God, aren't you Rick Dalton? Weren't you on Bounty Law? He's like, yeah. Yeah, I was. <laughs> that is me. Asking. You're quite right. Yeah. He's so happy. And it's such a great... Well, we should wrap up here, but I think it's such a great... You know, Tarantino always a marrier of high and low culture and all the things that he's ever done, whether it was taking uh, French New Wave cinematography tactics and applying them to black exploitation movies and any and all of this stuff. And now he's in this space where he can marshal the la- he's one of the last rock star directors with some of the last movie stars um, before either we don't have them or a new generation like fully rises up. And what does he apply them to? Like the epitome of low culture CBS cowboy shows in 1968. That's what he makes the most glamorous people in the world do. Um, and it really feels like if he's really going to quit at 10 movies, like, yeah, this, these, are, these would be some of the final notes of the song. Right. Uh, anyway, should we rate it? I think we should, and I think you've made me come around, too, on what my rating will be. But what's yours? Uh, I think it's a good good. Uh, unquestionably, I would love to see it again. Um, I got the chance to see it on 35mm down the street, um, which this is, which is not, I'm not normally the kind of person like, you must see it upon film. But, uh, but watching this movie about, you know, making films on film on film is rad. So that's pretty cool if, uh, if you got a place nearby that does it. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I have much more to add. I was just really happy that he did something different because Django and Hateful Eight are were not great for me, and uh, no. I was pleased. And I feel like my sort of meta textual pleasure like made this movie, which is just readable for days and full of star power, all the better. I have so much enjoyed too the fact that a lot of people are talking about this movie and then like also seeing it. You yeah. know, I felt like with. In a lot of cases, especially, you know, two guys hosting a movie podcast. Well, a lot of the time we're speaking into the echo chamber. But this one feels like, you know, a bona fide hit that, like, is artful. And, like, I can't stop thinking about it. Like, I wasn't as wowed as you were, like, the moment I left the theater. But thinking, there's been such pleasure in thinking about it for the past couple of days. And, like you know, listening to a lot of other podcasts and like reading a lot of articles. There's this great Atlantic piece that talks about just how freaking subversive this movie is. And like, I hadn't thought about like, there's just so many levels to it. And I like that it is the focal point of such cultural criticism. Um, So I think it's a, it's an unquestionable good, good. And it may, it, it may in fact be this sort of saving, you know, comparison that will allow movies like it to continue to be made with the sort of budgets that they need to be good. Yeah. I, I've, you're right. I think I've honestly been waiting for it all year, not only because I was excited for Pitt, Leo, and Tarantino, but also in this box converse, box office conversation we keep having. It's just like, well, if we're truly trying to figure out, will anyone go to the theater for a movie aimed at adults. Like, we should probably try putting a good movie aimed at adults in wide release, shouldn't we? <laughs> to, to see if the test works. And right, well, that's may... the... 
This ahead. may be the except. This may be the exception, not the rule. I mean, when you think about it, these are people who make movies like once every few years. Um, but people turned out. It's not that people don't want to see this stuff. They, if it feels like an event, they will go. People just don't want to watch mediocre shit, and I think yes. that's going to ultimately be what saves Hollywood theatrical distribution and sort of causes the streaming world to contract inevitably is the curation of quality shit. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when you look at the, oh, like this movie didn't hit the mark for the, you know, the box office or this movie was a disappointment. It's like those movies were either not good or just good. They weren't yeah. great. If you put out a great movie that costs you $50 million to make, people are going to go to the box or the people are going to go to the theater and see it because they want to have this sort of experience of being able to talk about it. That's why people do or sort of take in any sort of art, whether it's a book or an album or a movie. It's because they want to feel something and then communicate that to a larger audience. And the infrastructure exists for that. So I don't understand like why you wouldn't take bigger shots and put weird things into the, into the theater. People want the moment that my theater had when Leo goes into the shed for the flamethrower at the end, which is such a payoff from the jokey, hacky Nazi movie that he'd been in earlier. Does anybody want fried sauerkraut? Um, the, The collective, like, sharp inhale and then just, like, everyone uproariously slapping their knees with laughter was just, like... Who doesn't want who doesn't want that in a public space? Like people do want that. It's just how can movies promise that? And I'm really glad we got one that promised it and like and delivered. Well, Chance, it's been such a pleasure. I've really been thinking about this all week and like both this movie as a movie and how we unpack it that way, but this movie as both an object of Hollywood and a litmus test of Hollywood. And so it's been such a pleasure breaking it down with you. Um, and thank you to all the other writers and podcasters out there who have allowed me to think about this movie for the consistency uh, that I have. Yeah. I'm glad we got to hit it for the, for the fans too. This is like, I don't know. When you think about our, 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 our be real listenership, like probably new Tarantino is like one of the things people can all agree on. Right. I guess. Yeah. So happy to put this episode out. We have some uh, exciting episodes coming up in the next few weeks some look backs at anniversary movies. Uh, we'll give you the hint that we're looking at movies from 1989 that uh, will make you not want to go back into the depths of the water. <laughs> Just when you thought it was safe to go way, 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 way under the water again. Just when you thought it was safe to join James Cameron at the Marianas <laughs> Trench. Uh, it's not. I will never forget in the Titanic episode how you were just like, as a director, he doesn't have like a super distinct style other than his deep affection for submersibles. <laughs> uh, I stand by that. And we will be looking at the the genesis of his relationship with submersibles uh, his next His most week. submerged movie ever. So, buddy, I'm excited to keep on rolling with you, uh, doing more episodes for both for the fans and for the playlist. Uh, yeah, I hope you're well. 